1: Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And as I mentioned last week, that last week and this week, I'm doing re-releases because it's a holiday season. And every holiday, I do my favorite thing. I go to the beach, and that is likely where I am right now as you listen to this. On the beach, sand between my toes, listening to the waves, watching my kids, or every now and then, in the water, playing with my kids, Truly the highlight of my year being at the beach. So ah, I'm just visualizing the sun right now. Okay. So I picked through my archives of some of my favorite, favorite podcasts. And as I was going through, I found one I hadn't addressed in a while. Big Babies with Rebecca Decker. And the reason that I felt it was important to bring this one back is because I can't tell you how many times I hear students say, my care provider is talking about induction, maybe go straight to a serum because they say my baby's really big. And Rebecca gives some really great information. And she actually gave me some new statistics that I hadn't known. Do you know that ultrasounds can be off an estimating birth weight by up to 15%? That's huge. So listen to Rebecca has to say, she's amazing. If you don't know her, Rebecca Decker is an RN. Oh, she's got a lot of initials. There we are. A PhD, RN, APRN, and she's the founder and author of Evidence-Based Birth. She's got a lot of great knowledge. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to that. And before we get to that, as always, just a reminder, prenatal yoga teacher training, we're winding up for the year. We've got, by the time this comes out, we'll already be about to start our Willow Street Yoga in Washington, D.C. That means there's two left for one for New York in the spring, one for Richmond, Virginia in the spring. Keep an eye out. Caprice and I are doing a new training over the summer for postnatal and baby me yoga. Yay, super excited about that. The online course, Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi, for the yoga teacher who wants more support for helping their student in class, or pregnant student, or for the prenatal yoga teacher that just wants some new information and inspiration. And I think that's it. Please leave a rating and review if you haven't already. It's appreciated and helps people find us. And hope you are having a wonderful and joyous holiday season. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the PYC community within the walls of our studio or just within the community in general. I appreciate it. All right. Great holidays to you. Enjoy this conversation. Thank you for spending your time with me today and talking a little bit about some of your work you do. Thank you, Deborah. It's so great to be here. Thanks. So as a researcher, can you talk a little bit about your process and approach to writing your articles for evidence-based birth?
0: Sure. So one of the first things I do is first I ask people what topic they'd like me to write about. And then I kind of write down my own personal feelings about that topic. That helps me be aware of my biases and which will hopefully help lessen bias during the writing process, because if you're aware of it, then you can try and control that bias. And then um, me or my one of my co-authors will do a literature review. We usually use PubMed to do our searches, mm-hmm. and um, we choose the keywords that we're going to use and the inclusion criteria. So we're basically following the same steps you would if you were doing a systematic literature review. And so we look look for the different types of evidence. We look through the titles, the abstracts. We download the articles if we think they look relevant. Um, We read all of them. We read the reference list of each article. And then um, we read about the topic using other sources as well. So we may look at the guidelines that are on that topic, or we may use other reviews of the literature to look at what they've found. And then we start writing the article, and we make sure that every factual statement we write has a backup reference, a solid evidence-based reference.
1: Yeah. I've been really thrilled with looking at your stuff for the last few years because it's very solid. I feel like when I look at that and I use that for my own writing, I know that it's been researched. I know it's not just opinion. And so it feels very good to use that as well as very credible to give to my students. So I thank you for doing all that work. It takes the the rest of us.
0: It can take anywhere from six months to a year to write a new article and it can take, um, anywhere from three to six to nine months to update an article. Wow. So right now we are updating the article on eating and drinking during labor. We're also updating the article on um, Friedman's curve and failure to progress. And um, that is, it's it's an extensive process because we want to make sure we haven't missed anything new that's come out. And um, yeah, it's a ton of work.
1: So for today's today's topic, I want to dive into an issue uh, about big babies because I hear it from my students all the time. And again, I know that you do the research. I know you come at it unbiasedly. So can you explain what that means and how common it is? Yeah. So
0: about one in 10 babies is born big. Um, there's lots of different definitions for what is a big baby. Um, the technical word is macrosomia, which means big body. And, um, About 9% of babies who are born at term weigh 8 pounds, 13 ounces, up to 9 pounds, 15 ounces. And then about 2% are born weighing nine pounds, 15 ounces or more. Those are sometimes called extra big babies. So (laughs) if you've had one of those, you can feel really proud of yourself. Um, So overall, it ends up being about one in 10. Um, So it's it's the minority for sure. It's not super, I mean, super common. It does happen. But it's um, um, many women are told that they have big babies, even if they don't, if they're not pregnant with one.
1: Yeah, that's basically what I want to go into today because, as I mentioned, my students will come at me very concerned. I'm having a big baby. I'm measuring big. And it really freaks them out. And then they start to panic. So what are some of the factors needed to be considered when determining a big baby? I know gestational diabetes tends to lead to that. Um, what are some of the other things that might be a deterring factor? Well, the
0: interesting thing is if you have gestational diabetes, but you, are, you manage it mm-hmm. and it's treated and you keep your blood sugars under control, your risk of having a big baby goes down to what a normal woman's risk would be. That's great. So that's the good news about gestational diabetes. Um, But what we know is that about, um, let's see, um, I think it's, yeah, one in three women are told they're they're having a big baby. So it's obviously a lot more than the one in 10 that actually have one. And so the problem is, is that it's just really hard to predict a big baby. And even if big babies do lead to more problems, um, ACOG just this week came out with a new, practice statement guideline on big babies and they said basically their number one conclusion is that trying to predict a big baby is very imprecise was the word that they used it's just incredibly difficult to determine what your baby is going to weigh um while they're still in utero and um it's about um an ultrasound is no better than your care provider just using their hands to guess Mm -hmm. and um it's about plus or minus 15 percent of um Of the baby's actual weight, so um, that can be a pretty big range. You know, it could be off by a pound or more.
1: That's huge. I actually thought it was ten percent. So now there's even a wider range. So when the students come and say, "My baby's already measuring eight pounds, whatever ounces," you can say, "Rest assured, there is some give or take." So let's try to take it down a little, so they're not again panicking. So. What are some of the assumed issues that a care provider is concerned about when delivering a presumed big baby? I put presumed in because, as you mentioned, we don't really know until the baby's actually born.
0: Yeah, so um, I'm just double-checking that percentage to make sure it's, <laughs> it's done, um, that it was correct. And let me see what it says. Yeah, it's 15%. Plus That's great. It comes within 15% of the baby's actual weight. So if your baby weighed 8 pounds actually, the The ultrasound could say they wear, weigh nine pounds three ounces, so it can be off by more than a pound.
1: That's huge. Um, that's yeah. a really big difference.
0: Yeah. So, and and that's within ninety eight percent of the time. So two percent of the time, it can be off even more than that, um, which is about one in fifty cases. So. Um, Yeah, what
1: was your question after? Uh, So what are some of the assumed (coughs) issues that the care provider is concerned about when they're saying, okay, you're having a big baby, you're measuring large, we want to induce, what are they concerned about? with? Why wouldn't they let the pregnancy go to full term and just let labor start naturally?
0: So um, it's really interesting. When I did my research for the big baby article, which you can find at ebbirth.com slash bigbaby, Um, I found that even going back into the 1950s and earlier than that, um, obstetricians have always been terrified of big babies because they're terrified of something called shoulder dystocia, which is when the shoulder gets stuck, which can happen in smaller babies too, but it's more common in in a bigger baby. And um, the fear is that the baby's shoulder will get stuck, that um, they'll have difficulty Um, helping the rest of the baby be born, the baby's body being born, and that perhaps, you know, um, there could be a decrease in oxygen to the baby during that time, or perhaps the baby will experience um, an injury to their arm and shoulder, a permanent nerve injury. So there's this fear, even though this is um, not common to have um, one of those bad outcomes from a shoulder dystocia, most of the time a shoulder dystocia can be resolved if the care provider knows what to do. Mm -hmm. But in those cases that it doesn't, people are terrified of it and there's a lot of fear around it. So that's one of the big things that, um, that's probably the most common thing that um, care providers are afraid of, Um, which again, it can happen in any size baby. So really um, what they've found though is research shows that if care providers train and practice how to manage shoulder dystocia, so they have drills and practice it, that this can decrease, and in some cases they've shown it's eliminated any chance of injury from a shoulder dystocia. So that's like the bright side on the research, showing that we actually can um, use systematic education and training to teach care providers how to deal with this when it does happen
1: so that the baby won't be injured. Are you finding that care providers that perhaps have been practicing for a while go back to learn this training, or is it being implemented now for upcoming OBGYNs. So that's a good question.
0: <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there that research on that training is relatively new. It's it's been a big deal in the United Kingdom and the U.S. Um, they've just started studying it. I think that it's something that is up and coming, mm-hmm. and we will see more hospital systems implementing because it has been shown by really solid evidence to just be so effective. And I mean that. It doesn't mean that it'll guarantee that we'll never have a baby injured by shoulder dystocia, but it it drastically increases the chances if the staff at your hospital and trained and how to do it, not just individually, but as a team. So that's a big part of the trainings that they've done studies on is that the nurses, the doctors, the midwives all have to learn how together to deal with this emergency. And that's a good thing that they're learning how to do that. But in many places, they're still not getting that training.
1: Yeah, I I like to think that will happen. I guess part of me is a little skeptical um, to think that the hospitals are going to spend the money to train everyone. I mean, it would be fantastic. I guess I get a little skeptical when I know that even like delivering vaginal breech births aren't being taught too much right now. So, but I'd like to think that it could happen.
0: it's, It's such a liability risk for hospitals, for their staff to not know how to properly as a team manages shoulder dystocia, mm-hmm. that I think it's a no-brainer. That it's more of an issue of being aware of the training existing and implementing it, rather than a money thing. I don't think. I mean, all it would have to do is prevent one
1: lawsuit, and that would pay for probably twenty years That's of true. training.
0: <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah.
1: No, I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that, and very, you know, it just makes me think. Okay, there's a chance for women not to be pushed into the category of a oh, big baby induction cesarean. So great. It's wonderful to hear that there's some uh, training coming. Um, What are some of the other issues that are assumed with a large baby?
0: Um, You know, there's just an assumption that there are other problems in addition to shoulder dystocia, um, like um, that the mothers are more likely to have a severe tear, um, that um, the mom's more likely to have postpartum hemorrhage, um, that the baby's more likely to have other types of birth trauma. And it is true that um, the rates of these things um, do go up, although research is somewhat mixed. For example, we don't know for sure if postpartum hemorrhage is due to the fact that it was a big baby or the fact that women are more likely to be induced if they have a big baby, so Mm -hmm. they have a higher risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Um, And then, of course, you hear some doctors think that there's a higher risk of stillbirth. And as far as I could find, there was only one study on this, And they did find that only in the most extremely large babies, there was an increase in stillbirth. Um, It was about 1 in 500 compared to 1 in 1,000. But that's your baby has to be in like the 99th percentile for that to happen, for that risk to go up. Actually, most babies who are large have one of the lower risks of um, stillbirth. So if your baby's in the 91st to 97th percentile, they actually – have very have low risk, so it your baby has to be like an extremely extremely large baby in order for that risk to go up. So
1: oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I do hear also women talk about nervousness about what's going to do their to, to their pelvic floor, um, to give birth to a large baby. Is that something you think they need to be concerned about?
0: I couldn't find that much research on that. One of the midwives asked me to include that in the article, mm-hmm. one of my reviewers, and, and there really isn't a lot of good research on on that I could find at least if maybe if one of your readers finds it, um, let me know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just had a student saying, my gosh, what's going to happen if I give birth to this big baby? What's going to happen to my pelvic floor? And I thought, I will ask Rebecca. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll keep searching on that myself. Uh, so does a presumed large baby move the mother into a high-risk category if she was not previously categorized as high-risk? And how might that change the way she's managed from her care provider?
0: Yeah, I guess I mean high risk. How do we define high risk? You know, yeah. um, there is no one true definition of high risk, and um, I would say just based on the research that a large baby would not make you high risk. But of course, everything's about perception, right? So mm-hmm. if you're if you're viewed as high risk by a care provider who fears big babies, then there, you are going to be treated like you're high risk. So you know this is why a lot of research has shown that it's better to not know what your baby weighs because if you if they suspect a big baby, um, you're gonna start kind of down this path mm-hmm. um, that may end in preventable surgery, pre- preventable infections related to the surgery with no improvement in the baby's outcomes. There's been at least nine studies that have shown that merely suspecting a big baby is seems to be the main problem because it makes people treat you differently. Mm-hmm. So some researchers have even gone out and said, You know, unless there's a medical reason, those late-term ultrasounds just to determine the weight likely do more harm than good because they categorize so many women incorrectly as having big babies that aren't big, but they get treated as if they're big, and so that increases their risk.
1: So then the care provider sees that, hears that, and starts to think, all right, we should start talking induction. I'm guessing that's what that means.
0: Um, Both induction, both cesarean and uh, the diagnosis of failure to progress, which is a very subjective diagnosis. So if you're in labor and they suspect your baby's big baby, let's say they think it's nine pounds, but it's really just seven and a half pounds, but nobody knows that yet.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And your labor is progressing slowly because you're a first time mom and it's normal. um, They might incorrectly diagnose that as abnormal labor and think that you're not progressing because your baby's too huge to fit through your (laughs) pelvis. So that's why it's, you know, um, we never know what your baby's going to weigh till it's born. And if they incorrectly categorize you as having a big baby, it affects not only how they talk to you about your ability to give birth before labor, but even during labor, they can talk to you um, negatively about your ability to give birth, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And then it's really going to cut the woman's confidence in her ability to right. give birth. Right. I didn't even think about the implication of, oh, your baby's just too big. We've already determined it. It just can't fit through your pelvis. That didn't even occur to me that could be a problem. And if your care provider doesn't believe in you and the hospital staff doesn't believe in you, it's going to be really hard for the mom to believe in herself.
0: Yeah. And it does happen. There are babies that are too big to be born vaginally, you know, like that have had life-threatening shoulder dystocias, but those are uncommon. And um, the main problem is that it's so hard to diagnose. So there's really no good, accurate way to figure out which which babies are going to have problems.
1: Right. And as you're saying, it's one in 10 that actually are, but one in three that are already presumed big babies. So there's quite a difference in what's assumed and what's reality. Right. What are some of the options for women who are told by their care provider that their baby is measuring big and suggested to induce early or have a C-section?
0: Well, I mean, there's all kinds of options. Women always have options. Um, whether or not they're told about their options is a different question. Um, the Listening to Mothers study done by DeClerk et al., they found that um, most of the time when there was a big baby and the talk came up about induction, most of the care providers you know, talked about the benefits of the induction but not the risks, and most of the time they recommended the induction. Um, same thing goes if a cesarean was suggested for a big baby. So women tend to get kind of one-sided counseling when they're told they have a suspected big baby. That kind of leads them towards an induction or cesarean. So you can have the induction. You can have the cesarean. You can wait for spontaneous labor. Um, those are the basic options, just like you could with, with any baby. But you may experience uh, more pressure to go in
1: certain directions. So then how would you suggest a woman advocate for herself if when her care provider is pushing her perhaps or as late you know into induction or cesarean and has labeled her baby as macrosomia,
0: I mean, I don't know it's, <laughs> that's like the the million dollar question right? How do you advocate for yourself in a system that doesn't always um respect women's decisions um right to make their decisions about their bodies and their babies so I mean making. I mean, I would find out ahead of time if your care provider is the kind of care provider who, um, you know, assesses screens for big babies. Mm-hmm. Um, prevention is probably the, the best, um, you know, outcome if you have gestational diabetes, making sure you're managing it, but then also declining that if there's a non-medically indicated ultrasound, if the only reason for the ultrasound is to check the weight mm-hmm. to consider not to talk with your doctor or midwife about not, you know, what if I decline this elective ultrasound? Um, And then in the situation that you're in, of course, you always have the right to say no. Um, It's just a lot of people don't realize they have the right to say no, and they may not have the information that they need to make the decision Mm because they're kind of being given this one-sided information. So it's a really hard situation to be in.
1: Right, no, that's why I was looking to try to find some answers to what my students ask. But I like the idea of just you know questioning: Is this medically necessary to have this ultrasound and to guesstimate what the weight will be? Have you heard of women um, refusing the ultrasound? I'm just wondering how the care provider responds to that.
0: Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I'm sure every care provider would respond <laughs> differently. I know that in some situations there's more pressure to get that ultrasound than in others. Obviously, if you have diabetes or gestational diabetes, it's it's probably um, the ultrasounds are a little bit more accurate in those situations, mm-hmm. um, the research shows. So um, women who have more of a medical reason that might need one would, you know, be a good idea. Um, trying to think VBAC is another issue. A lot of doctors um, will only quote a let or allow someone to VBAC if the baby is estimated to weigh a normal weight. And so... Um, A lot of those women may feel pressured into an ultrasound, but um, if the ultrasound shows a big baby, then you may lose that support
1: for a VBAC. So it's just, it's a hard situation to be in. Yeah. I was just trying to find some information for my students, but you gave some great things for them to talk to their care provider ahead of time about the likelihood. And then, you know, I always think the students should shop around and make sure they're with the right care provider because... You can ask one care provider what would you do, and they could say, "Okay, straight for induction," or the other could say, "You know, they could be comfortable and not have the fear, as you mentioned, about shoulder dystocia and, others, and other issues." So I guess it comes back to the original idea of making sure you're with the right care provider.
0: Yeah, and if you, you know, if you're not able to switch, I actually have a role play that um, I have evidence-based birth instructors that teach these kinds of issues to parents and to other professionals, and we have a role play where the mom's doctor is telling her her baby's too big and needs to be induced really early. And so we actually role play it out. Like, how do you talk with your doctor about this? How do you talk to them about the evidence? Like, you know, and we role play it out and the parents just love it because it, it gives them like a concrete example of how they can bring the info up, like how they can talk respectfully and remember to keep that common ground as we're all on the same team, like team mom and team baby. And, um, And so I think role-playing really helps parents understand like what it's like to have these conversations and how you can have them in a respectful, empowering way.
1: That's right. So it's not butting heads. Can you give a little example of what that role-play might sound like?
0: Sure. Let me just pull it
1: up real quick. Okay. (laughs)
0: Okay, so the role play that I wrote for my instructors is actually um, the role play with the doula and the mom talking about the situation and how the doula can coach the mom in, like, how do you bring up the topic and, um, you know, how do you, um, what should you bring to the appointment? Like, which evidence should you bring to talk with them? And, you know, what are some red flags that you might, you know, if your doctor says this, what might make you think that they're not going to be supportive of whatever you end up choosing? And um, so we kind of role play, like, how doulas can talk with moms about how to talk with their providers. And and then we go through, like, what happens after the appointment? What did the doctor say? And what are your thoughts on it? And, um, you know, kind of just... Going through like some of the ta- some of the things the doctor might have said, and talking about them. So it's it's really a uh, coaching, uh, just basically almost like rehearsing with parents ahead of time, how to bring up the subject to their doctor, and um, so that's something that um, I think is important to practice ahead of time.
1: Can you give us a little of the script?
0: Yeah, let me see. Um, See, the thing is, this, the role play doesn't go over exactly how to bring it up. The, the role play involves the audience giving okay. suggestions about how to bring it up. But one of the ways that um, we recommend bringing it up is saying, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I really respect your opinion. I value your opinion. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on this evidence that I found, this article about big babies. And it talks about the how inaccurate the estimates of are of big babies And I was wondering if you could just look over this with me and give me your opinion. So basically you're just in a really respectful way saying, I respect your opinion, I value, and that's how you get the respect. We're on the same team. And then say, here is what I brought and then actually have a hard copy of what you have. So you can say, you know, and then asking for
1: their thoughts on it. That's great because then again, you're taking down, it's non-confrontational, you're on the same plane and it's just kind of an open, respectful conversation. Right. That's wonderful. Is there any and then other- if
0: you, and then if you notice like red flags like your doctor rolls their eyes at you or um they kind of blow you off or you feel dismissed or treated like a child, then that might be a red flag that that doctor is not going to be supportive of whatever it is, you know, if you end up choosing something that they're not recommending.
1: That's great. Cause that's going to be for many different things, not just the big baby situation that could be, you know, I'm going past my due date. How far will you let me go before we talk induction? How long will you let me labor? How long will you let me push? So if you show up with the, with the information and respectfully have a conversation, I guess how they respond is really going to let you know how they're going to respect you during the process. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Are there any other little tidbits from that script? Cause that sounds brilliant. And there may not be,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm just thinking, um, you know, I tell people to bring a list of questions like already written down, like maybe a max of three Mm -hmm. on a post-it note, just because sometimes you can get flustered when you're in those appointments and it's hard to remember what it was you were going to ask. And so practicing ahead of time, how you're going to bring it up respectfully practicing what are the questions you're going to ask and then reflecting
1: afterwards on what happened and how did you feel treated? Oh, that's great. Yeah, so You're not making a snap d- judgment on the moment. You can go home, kind of digest it and think, Oh, that's wonderful. Right. Do you have any final tips that you want to offer to our audience about uh, dealing with big babies? Really anything that you think would be useful for them to know?
0: I mean, big babies are hard because it's, it's kind of a conundrum, right? Like there can be big babies that can cause problems, not that the babies themselves are being troublesome, (laughs) but that there are health outcomes related to it. And again, I think it just goes back to over and over the professional guidelines, the research have said over and over, yes, a small percentage of babies have these issues because they're big, but we can't predict which babies are going to be big. And that's kind of the problem. Um, so, you know, trying to, um, not find out how big your baby weight, you know, might be weighing, might be helpful. Um, is just probably the, the, the best way it, it's just, it's a clinical conundrum and it really takes a respectful relationship with your care provider to talk through these issues and um, you know, shoot, shoot high aim for a provider who is willing to talk with you and wrestle through these issues and is open to talking about the research evidence. And if all else fails, print off the, the ACOG um, guideline or the summary of their guideline and bring it with you to the appointment where it says induction is not recommended. You know, like I think a lot of um, care providers are so busy, it's really hard to stay up to date on what is the most recent practice guideline from their organization. So having that copy in hand might be helpful if you're wanting something that's different from what your doctor is used to providing.
1: That's great, especially if they're showing up the ACOG guideline because that's kind of their main place for information, the, the doctors. So right. we're hoping that they're going to follow that. Um, I had one small question. So you are saying that induction is not recommended. I'm assuming that's because they're concerned about failed induction.
0: Um, induction, it, it was interesting. I thought maybe the ACOG statement would, would maybe lean a little bit more towards induction, but I just got it in the mail like two days ago and it mm-hmm. did not. Um, there was a big study that just came out. It says very, very early induction might decrease the risk of the shoulders getting stuck. Mm -hmm. So this, you're talking about 37 week inductions, Mm -hmm. um, which is very, you know, very early. Um, But it had no impact on any long-term outcomes, had no impact on any NICU admissions um, and that sort of thing. So, so that was the biggest big, the new big study that just came out about big babies and inductions. So, I was interested to see what ACOG was going to say about that, to see if they were going to lean more towards inductions because, you know, they're so afraid of shoulder dystocia. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But they said, no, induction is still not recommended.
1: That's great. So I guess it also comes back to not only having a care provider that you're on the same page with, but starting to think about eliminating unnecessary interventions and that, you know, having an ultrasound to determine weight could be an unnecessary intervention.
0: Right. And uh, the ultrasound by itself, randomized trials have shown that it raises um, your relative risk of having a cesarean by about 20%. So if your overall risk is 20%, um, it would go up. I can't do the math in my head. (laughs) Give me a second. Yeah. So if your overall risk is 20%, um, 20% of 20% is 4%. So your risk would go up from... one in five to one in four from 20 to 24%. Okay. So just the ultrasound by itself um, does that is is well recognized as an independent risk factor for having a cesarean, having that late term ultrasound that's elective or not medically indicated. And I'm not talking about ultrasounds at the end of pregnancy, you know, when you've gone past your due date and you need monitoring. I'm talking about just solely to look at the baby's weight.
1: Yeah. I think I feel like most students that I'm working with just have that, uh, routinely. I don't even know if mm-hmm. they realize they have the opportunity to, to ask not to have that. Right. So this is good. We're educating. Do you want to tell the community about anything that you have coming up? Cause I know I've been looking at your website. You have a lot of stuff you're working on.
0: Yeah. So, um, we try to strive to, to provide most of our information, for free. All of the articles at evidencebasedbirth.com are free, but we do have a membership for professionals who are seeking continuing education in the childbirth field, so we offer continuing education classes for nurses, midwives, doulas, childbirth educators, and physicians. And, um, so you can join the membership and you get access to all of, um, we have about 18 hours of classes and one of our classes is actually on big babies and gestational diabetes. So I actually have a three hour video class
1: that we go through all of this research in detail. Wonderful. And then of course, if people don't know about how to sign up, they can go to your website and just sign up for your, your newsletters and hear about what's going on.
0: Yeah. So there is, um, you can create a free account or you can, um, which will get you onto the newsletter it'll get you some free handouts. Also, if you go to evidence slash big baby, right at the top, you'll see the free handout on big babies. You don't even have to enter your email. You can just download it. Um, but if you do, sign up um, for the evidence-based birth newsletter. We have, I think, around eight handouts that you can download, plus you get um, an email course about evidence-based care. So there's free resources as well as if you want to join, you just click on join now to um, become a professional member and get access to the continuing education.
1: Wonderful. So, I know we have a lot of birth workers that listen to this podcast. So, I'm they probably already are on, on your website, but if they don't know now, hopefully they'll be going there. And for our students that are listening, hopefully this will provide them some evidence based information so they can have a really wonderful conversation with their care provider and then start to take some um, ownership of their pregnancy. So, I thank you for doing all this amazing work. Your research is really unparalleled to most people. So, thank you. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Oh, wonderful. All right. So thanks for your time, and I will let you know when this comes out. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you liked it, please go onto iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. All right, Rebecca, thanks for your time, and I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks, Deborah. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg.